Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We educate, we connect, we care. We're In Social Work. Hello, and welcome to In Social Work. I'm your host, Charles Sims. Muslims have been part of the fabric of America for more than 500 years. There were likely Muslim members of Columbus's crew when they arrived in the American Hemisphere in 1492. Transatlantic slavery would have certainly brought Africans who practice Islam to the developing United States. During the ratification of the United States Constitution, concern was voiced that one day there could be a Muslim president. Yet, in the early 1800s, the Ramadan fast was once ended in the White House. As one can see, the history of Muslims in America is long and complicated. Today, regrettably, the word Muslim often engenders feelings of fear, anxiety, or anger. How did we get here? What does this mean for Muslims living in America? What should social workers know? In this podcast, our guest, Dr. Omid Safi, examines the complex history of Muslims in America. In doing so, his discussion helps us to more fully understand the term Islamophobia. He critiques how the fear of Muslims has under the guise of making America safe, led to the resurgence of previously used tactics of state-sponsored intrusions into our civil liberties and calls for strategies that violate human rights. Nonetheless, Dr. Safi is optimistic as he offers us his ideas on how the citizenry in general and social work in particular can confront this tide of social injustice. Finally, He ends the podcast with his thoughts on what can and cannot make America great. Dr. Safi is a professor of religious studies and a director of Duke University's Islamic Studies Center. He was interviewed in November of 2016 by Dr. Isak Kim, an assistant professor in the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Our listeners should know that the content shared by participants in this episode is their own and not necessarily representative of any view, research, or practice from the University at Buffalo School of Social Work or the In Social Work podcast series. And now, Drs. Safi and Kim. Thank you for agreeing to do this podcast, and I am looking forward to hearing your your thoughts on many of the things that you've been speaking about, but also certainly in terms of the post-election and how it impacts particularly in Islam and the Muslims living in the United States as well. To start off, could you sort of share with us about the history of Muslims in America? Yeah. Well, I think the most important aspect to keep in mind about the history of Muslims in America is that it actually predates the existence of an entity known as America, 
there have been Muslims in America, at least since the time of Columbus's ship. We know that some of the people who sailed for the New World were themselves Muslim. The most important and prominent origin of Islam in America is actually part and parcel of the history of transatlantic slavery. Somewhere between 15 and 25 percent of the West African human beings who were stolen and enslaved and brought over to the New World were of Muslim background. Uh, the parts of West Africa that were part of the slave trade featured a substantial number of Muslim communities. And we know that over the course of time, that many of the enslaved human beings were Muslims, as was the case with other Africans. They were robbed and dispossessed of their culture, their language, and their religion specifically. But it's important, I think, for people to recognize and realize that the history of Islam in America goes back precisely to even prior to the official start of the American Republic. We know that even the founding fathers of America make lots of significant references to Muslims. George Washington himself is on record as having stated in 1784 that he would welcome good workmen, whether they come from Asia, Africa, or Europe, and if they're Muslims or Jews or Christians or atheists or whatever, that it would be welcome in America. We had the breaking of the Ramadan fast in the White House in the early 1800s. And so Muslims have been, in that sense, a part of the fabric of the American experiment, both as people whose work and labor contributed to the building of America, and also as the boogeyman uh, against whom a notion of what it means to be American was consolidated. So I'm speaking to you from the state of North Carolina. And before the state of North Carolina officially ratified the U.S. Constitution, there was a discussion on the floor of the North Carolina General Assembly 200 plus years ago, where people were saying, wait a minute, if we sign this Constitution, someday there could be a Muslim president. And, you know, this was at a time where, with the possible exception of enslaved human beings, none of the people having that discussion actually knew any Muslims, but the prospect of a Muslim president still hung over them in some ways. If we move forward in history towards the end of the 19th century, that was a time that we started to see a significant migration of Arabs initially to America. At that time period, they would have been from the regions of Syria, Palestine, Lebanon. There was no country of Israel back then yet, but the Eastern Mediterranean region. And about half of those Arabs were Christian, but half of them were Muslim. So, you know, when you take a look at some of the figures that are, you know, part and parcel of American culture, Ralph Nader, Casey Kasem, these kinds of folks, John Sununu, they're Arab immigrants whose family origins go back to that particular time. And a significant number of them were Muslim. What really changes the landscape of American Islam and this is something I'm happy to talk about more, is the 1965 immigration law. Prior to 1965, the official state policy of the United States of America was 
to have an immigration policy that preserved the whiteness of America. So people from other countries were allowed to move into the U.S. only in a small trickle that would not be seen as disturbing the overwhelming white hegemony of America. And in 1965, that law is changed and the new national immigration policy is put into place, which if you want to go back to the famous poem of the New Colossus, it has never quite been the notion of give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. That's a nice slogan, but it has never been official policy. The 1965 regulation said, essentially, give us your doctors and engineers. And post-1965, we saw a significant migration of Muslims from Iran, from Egypt, from Turkey, from Pakistan, from India, from Bangladesh, and from other countries who were never the tired and the poor and the huddled masses, but they were the technocrats. They were the doctors and engineers. And we started to see a migration in the hundreds of thousands of, if you would, brown Muslims to America who were by and large highly educated, much more educated than the general American population. But that had a significant impact because then by 1970, for the first time, the majority of American Muslims were no longer black. Whereas prior to 1970, Islam was not only an American tradition, it was a black American tradition. And when we go back and take a look at people like Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali, you know, the giants of 20th century Islam, they're all black Muslims. So I think it's important to have this longer historical trajectory in mind because sometimes we tend to treat the conversation around Islam and Muslims because of everything that's happening around us in the country now as part of a, it's about refugees or it's about immigrants uh, whereas, the, you know, these issues go back uh, decades and in some cases centuries. Right. I think that is very interesting take on and an important take on the history of America. And I think you can, you know, certainly say that history of a Muslim is the history of America in a nutshell and every aspect, right? And every every aspect of the American history has some components of Muslims and the people who espouse this Muslim religion throughout you know, centuries and even before, as you mentioned, the America was born in the 1700s. I think that the fact that you've sort of nicely laid out the short history of the Muslims in America kind of presents itself to the understanding of Muslims, not only in terms of the religion, but also in terms of, of their color lines uh, that we are now talking about. So I guess the next logical question to ask is, how this kind of shapes the notion of America as nation of immigrants in light of whiteness. And you mentioned something to the effect of, of the browning of immigrants shaping and changing the landscape of the United States. So if you could talk a little bit about that. Of course, I'm happy to, to do that. So, I mean, I think it's important again to realize that the history of America is a dream always imperfectly realized. To put it in a different ways, America is a flawed, noble experiment. 
and the contradictions are there from the very beginning. So on one hand, you know, we speak of we the people being created with uh, inalienable rights endowed by their creator, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and all of that. And yet from the very beginning, Native Americans are excluded. Women are excluded. African Americans, of course, are defined as uh, three-fifths of a person. So I think there's America's foundings are part of an enlightenment project with grand-sounding humanistic and noble aspirations that yet from the very beginning were tied into a history of whiteness. And that notion became more and more deliberate, where we see that already by 1790, citizenship, the idea of what it means to be an American citizen is essentially restricted to being a free white male. And the inconsistency of those legally enforced notions and then the grand Enlightenment era humanistic universal sounding rhetoric is that has to be pointed out. It takes time, of course, and we see that after the Civil War era, there are attempts to expand those rights into African Americans and then immediately backtrack from them, and then we get the Jim Crow regulations. We see that eventually we get Native Americans being brought into the fold. Women later on get some of the same rights, but again, there's a backsliding into that, so there are poll taxes and everything established. The conversation about Muslims is part and parcel of the same context, and I think that's an important point for us to realize. So, for example, when Muslims start arriving in America as immigrants, they go to the Supreme Court to be legally classified as white. And that's part of the racial context of the U.S. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that a few people realize that there are sort of, there isn't necessarily a line that says, you know, Muslims are certain group versus Christians are white. And many of these sort of preconceived notions about who the Muslims are in America. And you know, earlier you talked about how Muslims are viewed as more of a, a foreign recent phenomenon. But in fact, the case uh, has to be made that there are much bigger, longer history of Muslims in the United States and the sort of the, the contributions that they have made really goes beyond just recent history. I think it's that's kind of making me feeling curious about this idea of you know African American Muslims and uh, Muslims like you mentioned of uh, Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali, and probably many others who have emerged as we sort of begin to shape the idea of the context and the, this idea between race and religion and ethnicity and the, the complexities of that playing out in our recent history. And part of that challenge was, again, going back to the, um, the understanding of the race and the meaning of race and the meaning of religion and then all-encompassing thoughts about what to make of us as a nation and the challenges of dealing with that realization that the United States and, and, and a, as a nation is, is changing and it's changing for good in many different ways, not only in terms of race, but also in terms of religion. And I think 
that's sort of interesting to think about. Absolutely. So I think there's a couple of items that are helpful to add to that. So when we go back and we take a look at the history of African-American Islam, and, you know, here, of course, people like uh, Malcolm X uh, loom very, very large in that context. One of the themes that we hear consistently from Malcolm is this notion that we didn't land on Plymouth Rock, Plymouth Rock landed on us. In other words, part of what he wants to emphasize is this notion, which he comes back to again and again, that the American dream has always been experienced as a nightmare by its people of color. And partially, and you know, sometimes people take that to mean that, oh, he's just anti-American or he's this and he's that. For Malcolm, this is actually something that has a very specific genealogy. Malcolm knows what he's talking about. And what he's talking about is the fact that if you look at it historically, we have the United States naturalization law, which was passed in March 26th of 1790 which defines naturalization as immigrants who are free white people of good character. And lots of groups, slaves, Asians, blacks, indentured servants, uh, Native Americans, they're all excluded from that category. And Malcolm is just simply pointing out what has been the history of American policy. And then when he moves into his own age, not only do you see a history of lynching and Jim Crow policies, but that in his own era, he sees systematic state-sponsored discrimination against African Americans. So I think in that way, Muslims are and have been a mirror for America that they point both to the potential and the dream and the promise which is the reason that keeps people from all over the world wanting to move here, while at the same time also reminding us of a history of racism, materialism, and militarism, which has also been the reality of what many of us have faced. So would you say that there has been sort of ongoing, and since the, the in a time when Malcolm X emerged, and, and, and since then, the Muslims and the way the Americans understood Islam was always more of a sort of a militaristic sense that people misunderstood in, in a way that it's been brought to the forefront of a popular media. I guess what I'm, I'm wondering is, since Malcolm X in the 60s and, and the, you know, with the movement of civil rights and the various other rights coming along, um, Black Panthers and other uh, militaristic approach to grabbing or at least demanding civil rights and social justice to, to every individual in the United States. So how do you think that have influenced the way people viewed Muslims in more recent years? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say it's important to remember that Malcolm X actually never spoke in terms of civil rights. Malcolm spoke in terms of human rights, and the distinction is actually important. Civil rights are rights that a government enforces and recognizes in its citizens. And when Malcolm looks around, he sees an American government 
that is oppressing its own citizens of color. So he's not going to turn to the same government that is enforcing racist policies and beg them for rights that the people are already supposed to have. Instead, Malcolm says, no, 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 we are actually entitled to human rights, and I'm going to take the American government to court in international courts of law and hold you responsible and accountable there. And that's a very important distinction from the way that many of the civil rights movement, Dr. King most famously, approached the, the issue. And I have you know, a world of love and respect for both of those approaches, but I think the distinction between them also has to be kept uh, important. Thank you for clarifying that. I think that that is important to distinguish and discern those two things. And I think more and more, I think people are able to to recognize that human rights and sort of social justice issues overall begins to trump the idea of civil rights in general. As you mentioned, it's more of a localized national and a nationalism. Exactly. And then the other point that I think it's important to see as a continuity between the era of Malcolm X and the era of today is the fact that we know that in the 1960s, as part of the COINTEL program, that the American government spied on African-American groups, Muslim groups, groups that were deemed as being communist sympathizers, socialists, human rights activists, journalists, intellectuals, and others. This particular COINTELPRO, which stands for Counterintelligence Program, was a legally enforced program signed on by the Kennedy administration and the Johnson administration, which included spying on Martin Luther King. Virtually everything that King ever said was recorded by COINTELPRO operatives, and it included spying on Malcolm X and other black separatist human rights and civil rights organizations. The reason that I think it's important to make this point is sometimes we want to have a discussion that says, oh, these are all new policies that were established post 9-11. And because we had this unprecedented attack on American soil, that all of a sudden we have to be willing to give up some of our liberties and freedom in order to somehow, quote unquote, be kept safe. But the truth of the matter is that the policies that we're speaking of actually go back 50 years. They have nothing to do with 9-11. They have everything to do with a suspicion of people of color and people who are speaking in anti-colonial, anti-imperialistic discourses and people who call into question the fairness and justice of America's policies, both domestically for our own citizens and globally for other people around the world. Exactly. I think there is sort of continuity of, of exclusion based on race or religion in the past, unfortunately, in the United States history, you know, including glaring examples of like Japanese internment in, during World War II and the Chinese Exclusion Act in the 1800s. So I think it's befitting to recognize that the idea of checking in, I guess to put it mildly, and monitoring those who seemed different than for the lack of a better word, American, 
they were always subjected to more of the, the personal and privacy intrusions than most of the white Americans. That's right. And I mean, I think, you know, many of us remember the interview that Megyn Kelly did with Carl Higby, who is a Trump fundraiser and supporter and delegate. He's a spokesperson for the Great America Political Action Committee, where he brings up precisely the notion of the internment of Japanese as a model for what should be done to Muslims. Uh, and he's not the first or the last person to have done this. So I think there's actually a great deal that we can all learn by connecting the dots and seeing the ways that different communities of color have been and continue to be treated. Excellent point. I think that kind of you know moves us to the this idea of having to deal with how the 9-11 certainly had got us talking about the idea of Islam and the Islamist extremist group and trying to distinguish those two and maybe an inability for a lot of the American policymakers to push the idea of literally looking for ways to blame the Muslims and Islam religion for this unfortunate and and a horrible, horrible event. So in some ways, I think, as you said, there were number of, you know, historical precedents for monitoring, screening, and preventing people of certain group, both race and religion, within the United States. But what do you think was the sort of a the defining change that the 9-11 had brought to us in the context of, I guess, the, the idea of dealing with the 9-11 and the discourse that comes with that? Yeah, that's a wonderful, wonderful question. So I think one of the first things that I oftentimes tell people is that it's important, again, to see the disconnect between the official rhetoric and slogans that we see around us and the actual policies. So it it sometimes feels like you're seeing, you know, a classic like Animal Farm or something like that come into play, this sort of George Orwellian legacy where nothing is what it's called. War is peace, up is down, day is night. And uh, something called the Patriot Bill is actually a massive assault on liberties and freedoms that were guaranteed in the Constitution. So there's a couple of points that I oftentimes make to people. One of them is that it's quite important to realize that the particular policies that were implemented post 9-11, that they have a pre-9-11 origin. And that is as true for the militarism, right? So, for example, one can take a look at the fact that as of right now, the United States is bombing and droning Muslims in seven different countries. The most disastrous of them, of course, is Iraq, followed closely by Afghanistan. The war on Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11. There was no al-Qaeda in Iraq prior to the U.S. invasion of Iraq. What we had was a number of U.S. politicians, Dick Cheney, most famously, who just kept repeating Al-Qaeda and Iraq in the same sentence to the point that eventually some, I think it's 44% of Americans, thought that Al-Qaeda's base was in Iraq. 
Whereas until the U.S. illegally attacked and occupied Iraq and created a devastating sense of chaos there, Al-Qaeda had no foothold and no base in the Iraqi context. On the contrary, if you go back to the late 1990s, the neoconservatives, all of the people who formed the eventual Bush cabinet, they had a think tank in D.C. called um, TNAC, Project for the New American Century. And there's a public letter that they wrote to President Clinton saying, please invade Iraq. Iraq is important for our geopolitical interests. And by the way, Iraq has oil. Now, that letter was written in 1998. It's still on their website. It has nothing to do with 9-11, obviously. We used the excuse of September the 11th to wage in colonial, imperialistic, and exploitative policies whose seeds had been planted long before 9-11. The same thing is largely true about the processes of the national registries that we're hearing so much about. Look, at a very fundamental and basic level, these policies violate fundamental assumptions of our American legal tradition. In America, a person, not a community, a person is held accountable for actions that they commit, actions that they commit. We are not held responsible for thoughts or beliefs, and in most cases, even for speech. But we ended up establishing a policy known as NSEER, National Security Entry Exit Registration System, which was by and large designed to target Muslims. Iran, Iraq, Libya, Sudan, Syria, Afghanistan, Algeria, Bahrain, Lebanon, Morocco. I mean, you tell me what all these countries have in common. They throw in North Korea just to make sure that it wasn't all Muslim countries. And interestingly enough, the first set of countries that were put under NSEER were Iran, Iraq, Libya, Sudan, and Syria, whereas the actual hijackers of the 9-11 planes, 15 out of the 19 of them were Saudi citizens. So we actually established methods of mass registry of Muslims, which didn't even pretend to have protected us against the actual terrorists. So that's very interesting. And a lot of people are probably aware of it, you know, aren't aware of it unless it pointed out the fact that the group of people that we are talking about now wasn't necessarily part of these targets that eventually became a battleground, so to speak, in different parts of the world, particularly but in a, in a, in a Middle East, which is, I guess, very disheartening to realize that American policy is continuing to be opportunistic in ways that jeopardizes not only the citizens of the world in Middle Eastern region, the Muslims, you know, of course, but also for American citizens and the people that are trying to articulate the dangers of becoming a more isolationistic approach to dealing with this challenge in a world that is becoming much and much more divisive. That's right. And I think it is not only the case that the world is becoming more divisive, I think we're also seeing the rise of a new model of authoritarianism in many Western countries. So 
it's easy, of course, to look, quote-unquote, over there and speak about the Ayatollahs and Erdogan in Turkey and Sisi in Egypt. But what about, you know, we now have an open racist xenophobe as a president-elect of the United States. In the UK, we've seen Brexit, and you have Nigel Farage in place. You've seen uh, Marie Le Pen emerge as a very prominent possible candidate for France. And of course, you have Putin in place. So we're actually seeing the rise of authoritarianism in Western countries, in addition to the dictators that have always been in place in many Middle Eastern, North African countries and elsewhere. So I think even the notion that this is somehow a clash of democracy versus totalitarianism is missing the part. In fact, we're seeing extraordinarily aggressive, xenophobic, and militaristic political movements underway in the very heart of Europe and North America. Absolutely sort of mind-boggling advancement in, 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 in what you exactly have mentioned of authoritarianism across the world. I mean, you mentioned the Brexit, you mentioned Le Page in France, certainly Russia, certainly in the United States, where things are more becoming more of sort of a reactionary and and divisive, I guess, and that is sort of very new to, I guess, many of the people that who observed the electoral process of 2016. And a lot of people, I'm sure, um, including those who voted for either party, have been alarmed by this sheer disdain or disregard for civility in, in national discourse about what to do and what should be the course of action as a nation in the United States. That's right. And so I think, you know, it's one of the reasons why in some of my own public speaking and writing, I have insisted that we have to reframe the conversation. Really, the question, I think, is less that someone like a Donald Trump is misinformed about the reality of Islam and Muslims. I think the more important issue is that they're fundamentally wrong on America, and they're wrong for America, and the place to contest them uh, you don't go to someone who is openly espousing racist ideas and start listing off the contributions that your people have made to humanity. You actually have to call them out on their notion of what it means to be a citizen. I think more and more people are realizing, including myself, the perspective of dealing with someone who actively promotes inaccuracies about many people, not only regarding Muslims, but for a lot of folks who may disagree with Donald Trump's policy on what he's going to do once he takes office in January. But I am curious to know, in the context of this sort of very chaotic political and, and civil moment in the history of the United States, what can we do as U.S. citizens in particular to advocate and to support those who are being targeted, particularly in this case, uh, American Muslims, to be able to support sort of ongoing movements that allows us to be sane again. 
I think my suggestion is to always look to a model of ground-up solidarity, the kind of uh, fear-mongering, and it is exactly that. You know, these comments are not offhand comments. They're not haphazard comments. They're comments that are designed specifically to appeal to a primal level of fear and rage and frustration among many Americans, white Americans in particular. And I think a way of uh, countering them, and I'm sure other people have great ideas as well, is to actually begin by forming coalitions among Asian Americans, Hispanics, Muslims, African Americans, working class folk of all colors and stripes, women's rights groups, environmental groups, public education groups. And if you start putting all of those together, then you actually have a majority of America. I think it's important to realize that Trump doesn't have a mandate and he doesn't have a landslide. He won less than a quarter of the vote. Half of Americans who were eligible to vote didn't vote. Of the half who did vote, more than half of those voted for Hillary Clinton. So Trump really has about a quarter of America, which is overwhelmingly white. 81% of white evangelicals voted for him. White men voted for him by a factor of 31%. And even a majority of white women voted for Trump. An open misogynistic who talks about grabbing women by the pussy and doing whatever he wants to them. A majority of white women voted for Donald Trump. But he still has less than a quarter of the vote. There's three quarters of America on the other side. And I think the, the, it's important to not give in to despair and to fear, which is exactly what these techniques are designed to do. Uh, fear mongering is designed to invoke a sense of fear. And I think it's important instead, not for each one of our communities, just to be looking out for our own community, but actually operate from the basis that says, I can't be who I want to be until all of us be who we ought to become. That's an excellent comment. I think, you know, what Dr. King has said before, and probably a lot of people are sort of reiterating this quote, is, is the fact that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. The challenges of us being alert and responsible and be active, I think it's important for us to be vigilant not just for ourselves, um, for those who are on the minority, but for those who are for equal rights, human rights, social justice, and advocating for peace and harmony for all civility, all humans across the, uh, the globe. It says something about the importance of uh, keeping it together, keeping it solid, and making sure that what you've just told is the fact that we have to realize that there are more of those who actually believe that things are going to be better we act if we act together rather than sort of you know singling out one group or one religion to be the target or bearer of the responsibility for that matter so thank you for that comment um, and I know that we've been talking in, in terms of, of more of a historical election of 2016. 
and and when we began talking about the idea of being a Muslim in the United States and how that sort of impacts their life here in the United States and it all kind of goes back to the beginning where you started to talk about the inclusiveness of the United States history that has an ideal but never really kept that promise and needing to realize that yeah we all need to work together we all need to be alert and vigilant in terms of the threats that we are facing and i think you know i don't know if you'll agree with me on this but the election of 2016 was the reflection of what we had only you know amplified you know maybe a thousandfold in many minorities and people of color feared and have experienced all along. That's right. And so, I mean, I think one of the interesting divides that I have noticed in the aftermath of the election, this is, of course, a generalization. It doesn't explain every single person's opinion. But I find it a very striking that when I would go and speak with my white American friends, particularly maybe folks of a more liberal progressive bent, the the overwhelming response was, how could this happen? How could someone like this become president? And yet, when you would go and you would speak with particular African Americans, they were by and large not surprised. And they would tell you, (laughs) we've been trying to tell you that this racism is real and it's pervasive and it's not just Trump, it's millions of people out in society and you don't hear us, you don't listen to us. And I found that disconnect to be very prominent and very uh, revealing in some ways. If I'm not someone given to hopelessness and I still do hold out some hope that the people who voted for Trump, they were here before. And the racism that animates so much of his support, that was a part of America before as well. Now that it's open and out in the open, maybe this can be an opportunity to cleanse it and to heal this country from the demon of bigotry and racism and to form together a different kind of America. Well, I think that's very good statement perhaps to end the discussion i think this conversation could go on and on and on and with this sort of high emotions and high frustrations that's been you know spraying over since the election and i do want to take a moment to really appreciate the fact that you were able to give a historical perspective on what we are dealing with. I mean, even though we are talking about the issues of Muslims facing continuous distrust, continuous violation of their human rights, I think it's important to realize it's, again, it's not the first time, it's not the only time that happened in the history of the United States. We can learn from this, we can learn from the fact that we were able to come back and rise above it all we did that once, and I think we are going to continue to press for that civility and the idea of social justice for all people, not just few exceptions, that continues to 
keep us divided. Do you have any last comments or sort of closing comments that you wish to make? You know, I think the only thing that I would leave us with is an open-eyed message of hope, which is that we've now gone through an entire year of having heard the candidate who is now the president-elect of the United States speak about making America great again. And his rival, Secretary Clinton, who won the popular vote but did not become president, kept on responding that, no, we don't have to make America great again because America's always been great. I think there have to be those of us, and in particular from communities of color, who stand up and say, actually, an America that practiced centuries of slavery was not great. An America that engaged in genocide of its indigenous population was not great. An America that engaged in Jim Crow and poll taxes and disenfranchisement was not great. An America that put Asian Americans of Japanese background in internment camps and excluded Asians from citizenship was not great. And an America that has continued to spend more on its military than the next 12 countries combined has not been great. We hope for America to become great as long as greatness is not merely defined by the size of our economy and certainly not by the size of our military, but greatness by the extent to which we're able to bring love into the public spaces by which we can make sure that the most vulnerable people in our communities are treated fairly and justly and compassionately. And that if we actually share that notion of wanting to live in a great America, we have to recognize that greatness is not in our past, it's not in our present, but if we're willing to take on this challenge and rely on the twin foundations of love and justice, that it may still be a possibility for us in the future. Thank you for that wise comment. Thank you again for your time. I know you've been awfully busy, and I'm so glad that we had finally had a chance to sit down and discuss this issue. You have been listening to Dr. Omid Safi's discussion on Islamophobia in America. We hope this has been thought-provoking. Please join us again as we explore other topics of interest and importance to the profession of social work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our online and on-the-ground degree in continuing education programs, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. And while you're there, check out our Technology and Social Work Resource Center. You'll find it under the Community Resources menu.